Mark chapter number 11. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied whereon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. If any man say unto you, Why do you this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do you, loosing the colt? And they said unto him, them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees, and they strawed them in the way. And they went that way before, and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David, that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and we looked around about upon the things. And now the eventide was come. He went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went to the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of them the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made it into a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at the doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, they, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remember it, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto him, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespass. 
But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespass. Well, this morning I'm preaching on a king, a curse, and a new covenant. Uh, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he astonishes the people with his message. This is a message that salvation doesn't come from their works. It doesn't come from their genealogy. It doesn't come from their ritual. It's not a place that gives them salvation, but a person. It's not works, but by faith that we have peace with God. And so I want to look at this. It seems like there's a bunch of, just a bunch of short stories that aren't connected, but really they, they're all connected, this whole section that I read. And we're going to look at from three parts, the king's reception and his inspection. So uh, the first part of it is the king coming into Jerusalem and he does an inspection. The second part will be the prophet's sermon and illustration. So Jesus the king comes in and Jesus the prophet speaks and he illustrates his message. And then the master answers and explains what he's talking about in the last section. So Jesus and the disciples are almost in Jerusalem. They're at the Mount of Olives and he sends two disciples to the village. And as soon as you enter the village, he says, there's going to be a colt. And that colt's going to be tied up and no one's ever rode this animal, and I want you to unloose him and bring him to me. And if anybody asks what you're doing, just saying the Lord has needs of him, and they'll send the colt. So the disciples did. They went just and did what Jesus said, and it happened just like Jesus said. They said, what are you guys doing untying that colt? The Lord has need of him. He said, okay, well, you can have him. Well, Jesus sat on the cold after they cast their garments on it, and they cut down palm branches and laid them in the path. Others went before, making sort of a, a path to honor him like they did with uh, Jehu in the Old Testament. And others went behind, and they were crying, Hosanna! Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He looked around at everything. And then he went back to Bethany. First of all, you might think, well, why the colt? Um, there's a pretty big, there's a lot of space here devoted to that colt. Well, it's the fulfillment of a messianic promise. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Greatly Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt in the foal of an ass. So Zechariah, many years ago, um, during the time when they were rebuilding the temple after they, they came back from captivity, Zechariah prophesied this, that the king of Jerusalem would come king of Jerusalem would come riding in and the people would rejoice. He would come in riding on a colt. Well, that's what, exactly what happened. The Lord said that he had need of a colt and it was necessary for the king of Jerusalem to ride in on this unridden colt just as the Lord had foretold those hundreds of years before through the prophet. So the king comes riding in and they're singing a song. They were singing in Psalm 118 and that was one of the songs that they traditionally sang at the Passover. It's one of the Hallel or one of the praise psalms. So Psalm 118, 24. 
And they were, they were singing and quoting that, and that they were saying, Hosanna, in, uh, when you read it in Psalm 118, it says, save now, I beseech thee, but that's what Hosanna means. Uh, save now, we pray. Save us now, we pray. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he that comes of our father David. The king has come. Save us now, we pray. Now, whether they rightly understood or not, um, maybe they sang because it was Passover, and that's what they, that's what they sang, were singing anyway. Maybe they sang because the king is coming and is going to save us from the Romans. But we know that they were singing praises to the king of kings. They were singing praises at Passover to the Passover lamb of God. They were true in what they were saying. Save us, O lamb of God. Save us, O son of David. Save us, O king of kings, who comes in the name of the Lord. The man Christ Jesus came to Jerusalem Jerusalem voluntarily. He came at the time of Passover voluntarily. They didn't drag him to Jerusalem. He didn't go against his will. Christ came announcing his arrival. Through Mark, there's sort of a motif of secrecy. He'll go from one place and say, no, don't tell anybody that I'm here or don't tell anybody what I've done. But here he comes in, not only announced, but comes in riding on this colt as they sing and they shout, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came as Christ and King and Lord to Jerusalem. He came to die for sinners. He came to give his life a ransom. Now we saw in the previous chapter the disciples were kind of, were scared as they were heading towards Jerusalem. Maybe they didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, imagine what you what you would expect to happen. He comes in riding into Jerusalem like this, and they were shouting and singing, "What's he going to do when he gets there?" It's kind of anticlimactic whenever we read it because he rides in there and he doesn't go to war. He doesn't go up to Herod or Pilate and say he's taking over. He goes to the temple. And what's he doing in the temple? He goes in, he looks around, then he goes home. He walks in, looks at the temple. Look, when he looked around, looked around at everything in verse 11, then he goes home. And that's it. Well, that seems, like I said, anticlimactic. It seems like there should have been something else. Why did Mark take the time to tell us that Jesus went into the temple and looked around and left? This is what everybody's been waiting for. This whole book has been leading up to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. This is the moment uh, that everybody has been looking for, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem as king. He looks around and goes home. But remember how Mark started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. But let's turn over to Malachi and read the the whole quote. So this is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then chapter number three. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. 
the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to the temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But, as R.B. was saying uh, before his services, good news, right? The Lord is coming. He's coming to the temple. But, who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a, like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as the refiner and the purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord in the days of old as in the former years. And I will come near to judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages and the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord and I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Whenever the Lord comes to the temple, the messenger comes, it says, and when he comes to the temple, it's not going to be a time of rejoicing, but it's going to be a time of judgment. When he comes, he's going to judge and he's going to purge those in the, in the temple. He's going to ju- bring judgment there. So Jesus didn't come and take a look at the sights. He didn't come. He came to inspect. King Jesus came like a refiner. He came to see what and look and behold what was going on in the temple. To see the sin of the people and their worship. And so he comes not as a, uh, a sightseer, but he comes as King Jesus to bring judgment and, and look and inspection upon the temple. So this inspection is made evident by what happens the next day when the prophet comes um, and his, we see his sermon and his sermon illustration. So Jesus goes to Bethany, wakes up, next day comes to Jerusalem. And he looks and it says he's hungry. And Jesus sees a fig tree and he hopes that there'd be figs on the tree. But it wasn't time and it wasn't the season for figs to be on the tree. So Jesus gets there and he curses the fig tree. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter and forever. It's a double negative. It's really, it's really strong language. And the disciples heard it. So what's going on here? I mean, there's a lot of questions just at first glance that you might have. Why does Jesus vent his anger on a tree that doesn't produce fruit out of season? I mean, you could understand now if you go to an apple tree and there's no apples on it, because you would expect to in the harvest time. But this is the springtime, and there shouldn't be figs on it anyway. So why does Jesus vent his anger on that why does jesus who has through the whole gospel gone to people who were sick and healed them he gave blind men sight he gave deaf men hearing he brought life to to dead people he healed women of their diseases he healed the multitude he took loaves and fishes and fed the multitude Over and over again, you see Jesus bringing life and bringing abundance where there wasn't any, but he gets to this point, sees a tree that 
is not producing fruit and he curses it. He doesn't cause figs to grow like it would have seemed he would have done. You know, that had been the pattern, right? That he would have saw no figs on a tree and then caused the figs to grow. Instead, he curses it. Why is Jesus the only one hungry just after leaving Bethany? Why is it important that it says the disciples heard it? Well, lots of questions that you have about this scenario. But nothing's answered yet, and we go on to the temple. So Jesus comes into the temple, and he starts casting out people that were in the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He cast out the people who were selling doves. He wouldn't let anybody carry the vessels through the temple. So in effect, he just put the temple worship on hold. Nobody's going to give any money. Nobody's going to offer any sacrifices. Nobody's going to carry anything uh, the, through the, the temple to aid in the worship. He just, everything comes to a stop. Then he begins teaching. It, is it not written, my house shall be called a, of all nations, the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. The scribes heard it. People were astonished at his teaching. They said, we got to kill this man. Then in verse 19, it was evening and he went home. He, went, he left and went back. So what's going, on, what's going on here? Now Jesus doesn't cleanse the temple. Because cleansing would imply it'd be clean after, it'd be made pure. But as we see, when Jesus comes into the temple, he kept, you know, he does that, the, overthrows the table, the money changers, and so forth. Well, in verse 18, the people who run the temple, the scribes and the chief priests, are trying to think how they can kill him. So, if anything, the temple was more wicked than it was before Jesus got there. The, the people didn't become cleansed. He didn't cleanse the temple. They were just as bad as before. And he doesn't reform the temple worship. He wasn't coming like Josiah to do reformation. What Jesus does in the temple probably put a halt to the proceedings maybe for an hour or two. The money changers picked up the table and picked up their money. The people who sold doves went right back to it. Jesus didn't come to get temple worship back on track. We're putting new wine in old bottles. He wasn't condemning the injustice of people for selling, but he was condemning the whole thing, the whole system. And we can, if we go back and look at what Jesus was quoting, I think we can understand why he did what he did in the temple. So we already see that Malachi said he was going to come and look and see the temple, and he's going to find judgment. Now in Isaiah chapter 56, Jesus quoted two scriptures here. Isaiah 56, verse number 1, says, Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and keeping his hand from doing any evil. Neither let his son, the stranger that joined himself to the Lord, speak, the Lord hath utterly separated from me his people, 
neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord, the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me, take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give this place of mine house and within my walls, and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taking hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted on the, mine altar and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. So Jesus says that in his house, my house, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not just the Jews, but all nations. And even more so in Isaiah here, the Lord was speaking of the eunuch. And the eunuch wasn't allowed. He had to be cut off. Deuteronomy 23. The foreigner or the, or the Gentile. The outcast. Those who would be ceremonially impure were not allowed to come. They were separated. And as we saw, like the lepers, the woman with the issue of blood, um, the, those who had touched the dead bodies. We've seen all through Mark where they were outcasts, they were separated. They were not allowed to come and be a part of the people. And Jesus comes into the, the temple with all their, with the, their ritual, and he says, my house should be a house of prayer for all people. The temple would be a place where all people would draw nigh, but now only a very few could enter. And those who had entered were not those who were seeking to worship God in, in faith. So Jesus didn't come to turn Herod's temple into a house of prayer, but to pronounce judgment on it, because that building is not the fulfillment of Isaiah 56. It's far from the opposite. Now, the next verse that Jesus quotes is in Jeremiah 7. So we ask ourselves, is Jesus mad because they were... Uh, selling, changing money in the temple or selling the animals? Is that the whole issue here? Is the issue over the people robbing the poor in the house of God? Well, Jesus said they made the house of prayer, which was a place where out the, the, the sinners could come to God and find forgiveness. Sinners could come, those who were far from God, could come and be made nigh unto God. But instead of it being a house of prayer, Jesus says it's become a den of thieves. Now we, we see the money, and, and the money changers and people selling things, and then he says den of thieves, and we automatically connect that, those two things together as if that's the only problem here was the money. And if it hadn't been for that, everything would have been fine. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And that really doesn't make any sense to call that uh, a den of thieves. Because thieves don't rob themselves. A den of thieves is where thieves go after they rob somebody. It's their hideout. It's the villain's lair. 
it's the place in the, in the westerns, the caves. You know, they'd go and they'd rob a train and they'd all road, ride back into the, and go hide in the cave somewhere. And that's where they'd store their, their loot away from the, the, the marshals and the, the posse that was after them. That's the, the den of thieves. It's where they go after they rob somebody to hide themselves from judgment and from the law. A den of thieves is not the place where you go and rob somebody. It's where you go to protect yourself from the law. It's the hideout. The money changers were there because they got the currency. You know, you had to get the currency to pay the temple tax of a half shekel. You know, that... It's probably from Exodus 30. They, it wasn't a perpetual tax, but the Lord said in Exodus 30, you should give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. They shall give everyone that passeth a half a shekel to the sanctuary. So you go, and if you're a foreigner's Passover, people come from all over the, the known world to, to celebrate Passover, the Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And you got foreign money, you can't give that to the temple, they would exchange it. So he cast them out. He cast out the people who sold animals for sacrifice. He also wouldn't let people carry vessels through. The doves were there for sacrifices for the purification of women, Nazarite vows, lepers, burnt offerings, trespass offerings, touching dead bodies, most of the thing, a lot of those things, except for the Nazarite vow, we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. Lepers would have to go and offer those. People that had the issue of blood would have to offer that. He cast them all out. So what was Jesus doing here? I don't think he was cleansing the temple so much as condemning it and foretelling of its disposal. So... Jeremiah 7, the word of the Lord came into Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gates of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all ye Judah that enter into these gates to worship the Lord. So like Jeremiah, King Jesus enters the gates and he spoke with authority God's message. What was God's message to the temple worshipers? Verse 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The lying words was the temple. That's where God will bless you. That's where you'll find safety. Come to the temple. You'll find this is home base. So, well, what's wrong with coming to the temple? Verse 5. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense unto Baal, and walk unto other gods whom you know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, 
we are delivered to do all these abominations. Is this house which ye have called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Even I have seen it, saith the Lord. King Jesus comes in and inspects the temple. Behold, even I have seen it. These people were not upholding justice. They were oppressing widows and orphans and foreigners, and they were shedding innocent blood. They were committing idolatry. They were, they were practicing devil worship. Then they would run to the temple for safety. The temple, the temple, the temple. They go and commit adultery. They run to the temple. Like they were playing tag, and that was base. And as long as we're here, we're okay. They trusted in words and false words that did them no good, lying prophets. And they thought they could treat the temple like thieves treat their lair. And they go out and commit crime and outlaws, or do all their outlaw things and come back to the temple. And they, they never said, forgive me, Lord, at the temple, or have mercy on me, but we're delivered. We made it back. Now we can do whatever we want. We are delivered to do all these abominations. God has saved us, so we now we can go and do all these abominations. They treated the temple like some sort of magic place, like Shiloh, if you keep on reading now, where the ark was for a time. And, and remember how the Israelites would go, and they said, well, we got the ark, so we can defeat anybody. We'll take the ark and use it like a nuclear weapon, and no one could defeat us. Well, they found out several times the Israelites did that that's not how it worked. It was the Lord. It wasn't that ark that, that was magic. The Jews thought they could do all manner of wickedness and evil and then come hide in the temple and be safe. The scribes and the Pharisees could go and they could plot the murder against, of Jesus and then think they'll be okay. They could rob widows, houses, as Jesus said, and condemns them, they could commit all manner of iniquity and then go to the temple and say, well, we're, we're holy, we're righteous, we're in the temple, we're, we're okay. Jesus comes in as king, and they were not on the verge of the millennial kingdom. They were on the verge of destruction. And Jeremiah preached this message in chapter 26 of Jeremiah they plotted to kill him. They wanted him dead. Jesus preaches this message and what the scribes and Pharisees do. Well, they heard it and they saw how they might destroy him. The same hard-hearted attitude. Remember when we saw that Jesus was talking about marriage and divorce, he said, for the hardness of your hearts, the same hardness of hearts that you find in the Old Testament, um, rebellious nation, is what you find here in this temple. So Jesus didn't come... To, to cleanse it. He came to pronounce the end of, this, uh, of, the, of the system and their, and their um, rule. So how does all this fit together? Riding in on the horse, a fig tree, turning over tables. Well, we see the master's answer and explanation starting in verse 20. So in the morning, they see the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now, Peter remembered this. I think it's interesting that um, this is the first time that you find Peter seeing, hearing, and remembering. You know, he, he heard Jesus, and he saw it, and now he remembers it. 
what Jesus had said. But Jesus said he cursed that nobody would eat of the tree. The next day, it's not just barren, but it's dead. It's withered up. And so Jesus' answer, so Peter points that out, said, Lord, look what happened. You cursed the tree, now look at it. So Jesus answers him. Verse 22, Jesus answering him. So whatever Jesus says in verse 22 is connected to the fig tree. And the fig tree is connected to the temple, and that is connected to Jesus riding in on the horse. But what's Jesus say? Have faith in God and pray. What's all this mean? Well, our first clue is this is the Mark sandwich that he likes to do, right? So he, he likes to start a story, put something in the middle, and come back and finish it up. So the bread of this, this section is the fig tree. He curses the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then we come back to the, the bottom bun of the, of the fig tree again. King Jesus comes in and inspects the temple. He looks around. He overthrows the temple, which is sandwiched between the curse of the fig tree and the fig tree's explanation. So the fig tree, first of all, was out of season. Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 47 that during the kingdom, the fruit trees, Ezekiel 47, 12, the fruit trees would bear fruit every month. So whenever the King Jesus, when the Messiah rules, those trees in Jerusalem, every, they'll always have figs on them. There'll never be an in-season and out-season when the king rules. King Jesus comes in, and the fig tree isn't growing figs. So that's, this is a clue to them that the kingdom is not coming like you think it is. He didn't come to set up his rule um, in, in his everlasting kingdom. The disciples were expecting that, but no. What Jesus is doing here is a, is a sign message. It's a prophetic rejection. What Jesus did to the tree... And what he did in the temple was a prophetic rejection and judgment. It was symbolic, like um, the Old Testament prophets. So read Ezekiel 4 and 5 later and and see what God had Ezekiel do. I'm I'm glad I'm not an Old Testament prophet. He had to lie on his side for 390 days. Then he had to get up and lie down on the other side. He had to shave his head and then beat it with a sword and cast the wind and set it on fire. He did all kinds of things to symbolize his message. And this is what Jesus is doing as the prophet. The tree is the nation of Israel, their temple worship and the old covenant. The people there in that tree are barren and fruitless. They took the holy things of God meant to picture God's grace and they turned it into a den of robbers. Instead of coming to the temple to find, to hear of the grace of God and the mercy of God and salvation, they come to the temple and find it to be a villain's lair. And just as that barren tree is now cursed and dead, headed for ruin, so too is the temple worship. The tree illustrates what Jesus said and did in the temple. 
But then you say, well, what's this have to do with prayer and forgiving people? Well, what did Jesus do in the temple? He turned over the money changers where they went and paid their temple tax, their ransom. He halted the selling of sacrifices and doves for burnt offering and sin offering and purification offering. He said it should be a house of prayer. But then, if the temple was gone, how are people going to hear? How are they going to pay the ransom? How are they going to offer sacrifices? How are they going to be pure? How are they going to be forgiven? In 2 Chronicles 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Solomon by night, verse 12, and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place, so the newly built sacrifice, for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, there shall be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. That one's familiar, but listen to the next verse. And now my eyes shall be opened, my ears shall be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. If Jesus pronounces a curse on that place, what are they going to do? Jews still today go to the wall and pray. Where the temple was finally destroyed in AD 70, what did they think about it? Where would they go? Think about what a life-changing, paradigm-shifting event happened when the temple was destroyed. I read that right after that, one of the rabbis asked another, and he said, woe for us, because this is the place where the iniquities of Israel were atoned for, and it's laid to waste. And then another rabbi said, well, be not grieved. We have another atonement, acts of loving kindness. The scriptures say, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They ask themselves, what are we going to do? We have no temple. How can we make a ransom? How can we atone for our sins? How can God hear us? For they believed that that was the very gate of heaven. They took what God said in 2 Chronicles, that that was the place that prayers are made. That's where, where God would be. How are, how are they going to do this? Well, they said good works. They still go to the wailing wall today and pray. But what did Jesus tell his disciples? Where would you go? How can you have your sins forgiven? He says, have faith in God. Whoever shall say this mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea, shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he said shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Not any mountain. It wasn't, if you pray to any mountain, be cast in the sea. But he said, this mountain. What mountain? Well, I think it's the temple mount. This mountain, he says. That's an act of God. There are two other things cast in the sea in the book of Mark. One was the demon-possessed pigs, and the other was Jesus said if you harm the little children, you'd have a millstone tied around your neck and cast in the sea. Now he's talking about the, this mountain. It's, a, it's an act of God. Judgment. Prayer is an act of faith. Have faith in God. God is the one that answers prayer. The temple doesn't answer prayer. 
the location where you pray doesn't make it more potent or more powerful. Yes, God answers prayer, and it doesn't matter if you're in the temple. Because the prayer of destruction that will come will be answered by God. Well, what if we sin? How can we be atoned for? Have faith in God. The Father's not in the temple, but he's in heaven. Your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. You can pray anywhere. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to the temple. If you don't forgive, in verses uh, 25, 26, then you won't be forgiven. It doesn't matter where you go. They would go to the temple and not have any, uh, not be penitent about their sin, and they just go about their business. They didn't, they didn't repent of their sin. They just went to the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. It's a den of thieves. But Jesus says, it doesn't matter if you go to the temple. If you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven. Meaning, if there, if there is no change of heart, you're still in your sins. It's not, I'll go buy a dove and get out from under this guilt. No, it's have faith in God. Faith and repentance. How can God hear me? God will answer your prayers anywhere through Christ. The temple is not the gate to the heaven. Christ is the door. He is the way. We say, what if I'm unclean and impure? What if I have leprosy? Well, Mark has shown us. He healed all three of those. They didn't, one he sent to the temple, but the others he didn't. They didn't have to go and offer sacrifice to be pure. He made them pure. Have faith in God. If the money changers are judged, how can I pay the ransom? Where's my ransom? Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Have faith in God. Jesus, our prophet king, fulfilled the old system and had become nothing more than a den of thieves rather than a holy place. It was full of hard-hearted religious people, but our priest king established a new and better covenant with his blood. Not a place but a sacrifice, but a person. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were without promise, without covenant, with no hope, no God in the world. But Christ, Jesus, made us nigh by his blood. And so we don't have to go to that place. We are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. This is how all this is connected. King Jesus came and said, in my kingdom, it's not going to be this place, this den of thieves, but a house of prayer. Well, how can we have a house of prayer if the temple is gone? Because the house of prayer is now not this one place, but when Christ's people gather together. We have gathered this morning into the house of prayer, the house of God. Not this building, not this special place, but the people have gathered together and dwelt by the Spirit of God. We have gathered together to pray, and God hears us here in Clay, West Virginia. We don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to pay a temple tax because we have a ransom. We don't have to offer doves because he has cleansed us and purified us with his own blood. See, they treated the temple like a hiding place. 
They treated that as a home base that could be safe. But the law is not a hiding place, and the temple is not a hiding place, and the church is not a hiding place, and baptism is not a hiding place. Christ is our hiding place. He is where we find forgiveness of sins. Have faith in God. Trust Him. Have faith in Christ. Look to Him. Believe in Christ, and He will answer your prayer. Seek forgiveness, and you'll be forgiven. Ask, and you'll be answered. All through Christ. Come to the house of prayer. The house of God where God's will is not in a location, but where the people of God gather. King Jesus entered into Jerusalem not to fix a broken system, but to put the system away and, and establish the new and better covenant. To fulfill those promises in himself, which is new and greater. A greater king, a greater priest, a greater prophet, a greater temple, a greater offering. So what is the answer? Have faith in God. Have faith in God.